Hey gang, it's John. Thank you for listening to this very, very special episode of Deep Dive. You guys, we got Bob Rock to come back on our show and talk about the Colts' 1989 breakthrough album, Sonic Temple. This is the one with Firewoman, with Edie, Chow Baby on it. This was huge. Bob is one of the most successful producers in history, certainly of the last 40 years. And if you ask me, there's three major points of interest in this conversation. Number one, just getting Bob Rock to talk about music, you start, it conjures up stories with other, the other bands he's known for, like Metallica and Bon Jovi and Motley Crue. So you get great trivia, not just about the cult, but about all those guys too. Secondly, you come away understanding what incredible artists Ian Asbury and Billy Duffy are and uh, what they're like and what motivates them. It's really fascinating. And then thirdly, for being, as I mentioned, one of the most successful hard rock producers ever, Bob Rock could not be a more humble guy and kind, generous, sweet man. Not the personality you would think would come from a guy who's producing all this fantastic music. So anyway, there is so much goodness to be had here and I hope you enjoy this. And if you have not heard the original conversation I did with Bob about two years ago, go back in the archives. It's fantastic. Okay? He called me. Well, we tar- we start off talking about what COVID is like in Hawaii, where he lives. Well, uh, before we get into it, though, I, I'm really curious about something. You're you live in Maui, and uh, yeah, we vacation. My family we vacation uh, on the North Shore about every other year. That's our spot. We love to go back to the North Shore. And we were just there at the end of February. And about a week later is when everything shut down. And I've wondered, is it better, worse, or no different being in quarantine on Maui than it would be if you were on the mainland somewhere? Well, I mean, quarantine for me is really, uh, we have horses and in Kula. Wow. When you say the North Shore, do you mean the North Shore of Oahu or Maui? Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, Oahu. Yeah. Yeah. Well, basically, yeah. You know, it's smaller than Oahu, obviously, here. So our house is in Haiku on the North Shore, mm. and our barn is in Kula. So basically what I've been doing uh, in terms of quarantine is going from the house to the barn and back. Mm. I really haven't gone into town you know, I think I, I kind of, I go to grocery stores now sure. for about the past couple of weeks, but you know I'm a little older, so mm-hmm. you know I just keep my distance. Mm-hmm. I'm trying mm-hmm. to stay safe. You know, I'm trying sure. to stay alive. But basically, Maui was, you know, it's been pretty good. You know, I think everybody's been doing the masks. Of course, when they're in the water, they mm-hmm. don't. But mm-hmm. you know, I I would say I feel safer here. Good. Definitely. Okay. I wondered if people in in your situation uh, being land, you know, being on an island would feel claustrophobic, but you live there. So you're 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 used to that feeling. But I I just wondered if you thought, boy, the the whole point of being in Hawaii is being able to get out and do stuff. And if I'm stuck at home, that kind of defeats the purpose. Or if that's not really, you know, affecting you or how it how you see it. Well, the thing is, is when you live here, it, 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 you know, like. I don't go to the beach all the time. You know, when I first started coming here, I did. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it becomes like living anywhere, really. You know, when you live here, you know, sometimes I have to pull over and stop and look around and and just remind myself of where I live, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we have horses and I've got kids, you know. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, they're all grown up, but, you know, for the past 25 years, had a normal life, but, you know, we just don't mm-hmm. have to get on a plane yeah. for for five hours to go, to, go yeah. to Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah. So that's about it. But no, okay. I, I love, you know, it's a great place for my kids to grow up with. And, you yeah. know, I couldn't live anywhere else, to be quite yeah. honest. I, I love it here. I hear it's you. It's been nice, you know. Yeah. yeah. Being off and being and just being here for five months straight. I bet. Now. I bet. Yeah. Are you bombarded with music product projects? Or is every band under the sun sending you something saying, hey, uh, you know, if you have some free time, could you give a listen to this and tell me what you think? Or is it all just, are you just kind of shutting that part off? Well, right now, I mean, everything stopped. Yeah. Realistically, nobody can schedule anything. It's, it's a very strange time yeah. as it is in, in all every sense of culture right now. Yeah. Um, not, not much is happening, but, you know, I'm working with a young band called uh, Classless Act that mm-hmm. we're halfway through. Okay. And I'm finishing up uh, an Offspring album. Nice. Pretty much done. And an album with Richie Sambora, which nice. is also pretty much done. Good. I can't finish those until everything lets up, though. Oh, okay. You know, so, um, yeah. And there's okay. always things that comes comes along. But at this point, I'm kind of doing what what I feel like doing. Yeah. You know, Good. it's kind of what interests me. Good. Well, you've earned that. You've earned that right with the success you've had. That's amazing. Okay, so we're going to talk about Sonic Temple. And uh, this album came out, just let me give, I'll give some quick background information on it. It was released on April 10th, 1989. Uh, it reached number as high as number 10, by far their most, the Colts' most successful album. It sold a million and a half copies so far. I believe it was recorded in late summer of 1988. And I'm at, at Little Mountain Sound in Vancouver, your spot. And I'm always curious when I hear that, when we do these, what other things were going on at the studio at that time? Was there another band in the next studio, in you know, one of the other studios recording a, a different album that we would know, or was it all the cult all the time? I mean, I don't remember what band was in, but really, that time period at Little Mountain, you know, between you know when I started producing, you know, Fairburn was doing records, so. Mm-hmm you know, when I split from him and started producing, he was doing records. So there was always both studios were, were full. Okay. I don't remember, but there was ACDC were there, you know, Top of Dale Page, mm-hmm. I mean, Whitesnake, I mean, and yeah. Aerosmith, everything yeah. was going on. It was definitely the, the place to, to go mm-hmm. in, the, in that time period. Yeah. It was an amazing studio. And, uh, it, you know, I look back at it very fondly. It, you know, I started there in 1976, so mm-hmm. I've been doing this a very long time. Yes, you, you know. <laughs> yes, you have. Now, one thing else, oh, another thing I was curious, when you when a band comes to you and they, you know, like the Colt and they want you to produce their new album, do you insist on working out of Little Mountain or like do you believe that if you could only achieve the sound that you're going for in that studio, or could you go anywhere? Could you go to the record plant? Could you go to Electric Ladyland and do the same thing? Or is it a thing of like, look, if you want me, you're going to come to me because this is my happy place and this is where I make it happen. Well, a couple things, you know, I mean, I've recorded pretty much every in every country and pretty much every studio. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so I'd like to believe I could make a great record everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think, but, you know, there's places where, for instance, Little Mountain, you know, part of what, in particular, Billy Duffy, he had been to Vancouver and we were kind of friends before we did Sonic Temple. We had met mm-hmm. and stuff. But they were kind of looking for the sound that I did on Kingdom Come, etc. Mm-hmm. So they were looking for that sound and that sound was Little Mountain. Yeah, it, it, I didn't really have to talk them into it. They actually wanted that sound. Okay, and that's usually pretty much. That's I think most bands like like Slippery When Wet. I mean, they love the Loverboy record and the Honeymoon Swing record that Bruce and I did. So mm-hmm. they wanted that sound. So they were fine with going to Vancouver. Okay. And most of the great thing about Vancouver, it ended up being just a great place for bands to come. It was a, mm-hmm. it's a fun city, lots yeah. to do. And it's, it really works well. It was a great place to record. Good. Yeah. When a band comes to, I, I, I've never been on that side of the business. When a band comes to Vancouver, obviously the cold aren't from there. Are they staying in a hotel or a motel during the X amount of time that it takes to record an album? Two months, three months, a month, whatever it is. Are they crashing at people's yeah. homes? Are there lot? Is there lodging at Little Mountain? How does it work? No, it. it they all, all the bands stayed in in hotels. Okay. You know, especially at that at that point, budgets were were very gracious. Let's let's put mm-hmm. it that way. The yeah. budgets were good, so <laughs> so bands could stay in hotels, and you know, and that gives each member privacy and stuff like that. So hotels work best, and yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm it's just curious. How that I think actually Bon Jovi rented suites. Oh. Uh, they rented condos. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. And which they destroyed. <laughs> which they destroyed. Of course. <laughs> of great. course, but uh, there you That's go. Great. Yep, yep. Okay, something else I was curious about. Now, my understanding is that there were two sets of demos created for this of this album. And the first one featured Eric Singer on drums, who now we know from Kiss. Back then he was in Badlands. And then I think there was another set of demos that featured Chris Taylor, who I believe was a buddy of yours and was in Honeymoon Suite. He was the drummer on that second set, but neither of them ultimately ended up playing on the album. Mickey Curry did. So what's the story there? What? Why did those guys kind of flitter in and flitter back out? Chris Taylor actually was the drummer of the Paolas, and he was one of the assistants. Oh, that's right. Uh, he was, yeah. So yes. he was the drummer in my band. That's so right. he was just there. In terms of Eric Singer, we did pre-production and and uh, we did pre-production in Hollywood because that's where mm-hmm. Billy and Ian were living. Okay. And to be quite honest, when, when I worked with Eric Singer, we didn't really hit it off. You know, he didn't take to kind of my, some of my suggestions. So it was really hard for, for me to kind of work with them. Mm. So we ended up, uh, you know, we did pre-production demos and then we did more with just Chris playing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Chris was never going to play on the album. We you know, I suggested to the guys that we use Brian Adams drummer, Mickey Curry, mm-hmm. you know, who also played in Hollow Notes, etc. He's a great, yeah. yeah, he's a fantastic drummer. And obviously he was the right guy. Yeah. You know, he had a lot of swing, very easy to work with, very quick. So, yeah. Good. Uh, okay. I wanted yeah. to do what that was. Now, you know, a lot of people, it's interesting. The, the trajectory of the cult has been so interesting. And you know this, they start out as this sort of like, post-punk gothy band and then with electric the album that rick rubin produced 
They start turning more into a little bit of a hard rock band. I'm not, I'm in the minority. I don't actually love that album. Uh, Rick's style is very minimalist, which works a lot of the time, but I want a little more color and a little more punch in my hard rock. And so that album doesn't really work for me. But then they go all out, Technicolor, big as can be with you. And my understanding is that they wanted that. They were ready for this kind of progression in their sound. And that's why they sought you out. Were you, do you remember having conversations like that? Well, I don't think there was any, any kind of big conception. Mm. I think that it's basically Billy and Ian are, are the greatest kind of like combination, much like Jagger Richards, mm-hmm. Lennon McCartney, like all the, you know, uh, Joe Perry, Steven Tyler. The, the differences that they have in their tastes and the way they see things it's actually kind of, you know, makes them great yeah. because that combination adds up to something great and unique. So Ian was definitely a little more like where electric was, mm. but Billy missed kind of, kind of the grandiose kind of guitar playing of the love album. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he enjoyed, he, they, they wanted to rock definitely. Yeah. You know, so, and with me, I was a fan of the love album. Me too. And I liked the electric, but I was a huge fan of the Love album. Me too. And I, I liked the electric, but I was, you know, I, I kind of like I didn't really understand it. Why all of a sudden they were kind of more ACDC. Mm-hmm. But basically, so when I met with them, I just went, you know, in pre-production, I was going like, well, this is the way I see it. It's like let's take the best of both albums, mm-hmm. and and that should be kind of the center point. It, like I say, not a a conceptual kind of like discussion, but that's mm-hmm. the way I saw it is okay. that I miss kind of the melodic guitars that Billy did and the, the sonics that were happening and the, you know, all those great melody lines that were missing off electric. Yeah. That yeah. Billy did. The two have this, you know, this volatile kind of like relationships. <laughs> they love each other, but they're, like I said, in all mm-hmm. great bands, is that that kind of personality thing but you know we worked through it and in the end they loved the album when we finished it and you know i think ian complained about it a little bit because mm-hmm. he thought it was too kind of commercial sounding in a way mm-hmm. but you know that's a bit of his personality you know but let's put it this way much like a lot of the records that Luckily enough, it ended up doing really good and, mm-hmm. you know, really boosted their career. And they, you know, they toured on it and did extremely well. Yeah. So well, the album speaks for itself. And looking back at it, I think we all agree, Ian, Billy, because mm-hmm. I've worked with them many times, you know. Yeah. We look back at it as, regardless of what we were thinking at the time, it turned out to being one of their best albums. Absolutely. And it's, a, it's kind of a classic. Yep, it is. And, you know, that's a big reason why, you know, that's one of the reasons why the Metallica guys, you know, Lars particularly liked the Sonic Temple album. Really? Most people, yeah, it's funny, you know, in my career, what basically what most people, they kind of go like, it's the, well, Kingdom Come, Sonic Temple, uh, Dr. Feelgood, and the Black Album. Most people talk about those those three. Of course, Sonic Temple, um, Doctor Feelgood and the Black Album mainly, mm-hmm. but there you go. Okay, well, those are the those are definitely the biggies. One other thing in a, in an article that I was reading, an interview with Billy, he mentioned that you two were bonding over English rock bands. 
that you guys liked and had in common? And I'm curious what some of those bands were. Well, both of us, you know, are huge fans of Mick Ronson. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, and Billy, Billy, and Billy knew that I worked with Mick during the Pale, so we hit it off right away. Billy and I have always been very good friends. Like I said, we were friends before we worked together, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and stuff. I think he was in Vancouver when. No, they were warming up. I think with Guns N' Roses. Yeah, no, they were playing in Guns N' Roses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're warming up, and I met him on that tour. Right, and yep. uh, he actually played a, a show with the Paleys. He came up on stage. Really? So yeah, but and we just we have the same, you know, like that whole Bowie, Aaron yeah. Mata, Hoople, all that stuff. We both grew up with that, you know. Huh. He's younger than me, slightly younger than me, but that's our common bond. Yeah, you know, the, yeah. the rock, yeah, the glam, yeah. And so yeah, the okay. glam, and then same with Ian. You know, Ian's a rock guy, so. They knew where I came from. Yeah, you know. Uh, I'm curious if the so doors those reference points. Did the doors ever come up? Because you know, Ian eventually sort of takes over lead vocals in that Doors band that was made up of a couple of members, and I've heard them reference. There's some cross, especially in Ian's view of like Native Americans. Jim Morrison had a similar thing. I wondered if that ever came up as a reference point from Ian's perspective. I don't. I think. I think Jim Morrison and the Doors were, have always been a big influence on Ian. Yeah. And that's something, you know, the first band I was in when I was very young, I mean, we had an organ player and our band was based on Doors material. So mm. I've, I've always been a huge fan. Mm. So, and basically the Doors is rock music, you know, yeah. with the keyboard players. No, so, that's true. And we, we, and we incorporated that, you know, there's uh, uh sweet soul sister. Mm -hmm. has got organ. It's not, the uh, the Gibson organ that Ray Manzarek used, but but you know we incorporated that you know so yeah. there is keys on that record. There right? is, yeah. Which is there's nothing on. I I don't think there is anything on on the Love album or or oh, on Electric. I think keyboards, you're right. You know, I had that same note. And, I'm gonna I'll save my my notes for Sweet Soul Sister because I had that same note written down about the keyboards. Sorry, go ahead. What were you gonna say? No, I was just saying. So we, you know, the way I looked at it, it's just, you know, to me, you know, when you work with a band, you, you start with the basic and you get the song, the structure mm -hmm. and everything else, but mm -hmm. they become their own kind of like, they just, everything happens in kind of like a wave as you, you get creative, you get to know each other and, you know, and then you bring in the elements that whether they are comfortable with them, but at least try. So yeah. one thing we did is we did strings on Edie. Yes. You know, so and yeah. we can talk about that later. Okay. Yeah. yeah, this is all these are the things I have in my notes. So let's go with track one here. Sun King was the second single.
starts out excellently with Mickey playing the cymbals. It's a really excellent intro. One thing that I, we should talk about Ian's voice, because I have a strong opinion about this, and I'm curious what you think. To me, Ian's voice is more of a... And I know that this could be true for many bands, but I think it, it's extra elevated in his case. I feel like his voice is, is equally an instrument like everything else. And he uses his voice and his affectations, all those babes, you know, and his yeahs and all that stuff that he does. They're like little mini solos. And I mean, baby and yeah and right on and whatever. These are you know, rock cliches, they're in every rock song ever, but he uses them in such an instrumental way. And I was thinking of who else does that as effectively as he does. And one, I think is Billy Idol. Billy Idol will can get a huge mileage out of just the littlest, oh, you know, or yeah, or some little snarl. And another one is Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction. He can yelp and it'll make you feel something. And, and, so anyway, I don't know if I'm making any sense here, but I feel like those voices, they're elevated. They're different than just, they're part of the aural landscape or wallpaper of the whole thing. It's not just someone singing a song. It's someone whose voice and affectations is mixed in with the music in a way that it's practically an instrument of its own. Does that make any sense to you? Well, it does, but what you're picking up on is, is kind of, Really, what I like is, um, and with Ian and what he does so well, like, like he, I think on electric, going into a solo, he shouts boogie. Now, <laughs> there, he's the only man on the face of the earth can, that can shout boogie, and it'd be cool. So that sums it up. But I would say that those, those, those are basically ad-libs. And, you know, when you record performances, rather than go by line by line doing vocals, you know, you know, someone like Ian gets into the field, you know, and mm -hmm. we do many takes. And so those ad-libs just are part of singing a vocal where he's, mm -hmm. you know, he's in. He's deep into the character of what he's doing. Yeah. And he's one of those guys that, much like Mick Jagger, the great singers, right? Mm -hmm. They get into that mode. They Well, they just go to the place. They yeah. get in, in character, into, like you said. In character, that's the word I'm looking yeah. for. They get into character immediately. You know, great singers like Ian, yeah. and he is—he's an amazing singer. And I would say it is an instrument, but it's—you know—it's—it's it's also what it does is like it, it makes you feel like you're there with them, yeah. And because you know, like you're in the room with them because there's a presence that because you don't have the visuals with the record, right? Mm -hmm. But so you create the visuals with what you capture. Mm -hmm. So I've always been been like that, and. I mean, that incorporated, you know, on the Black Album with James. You yeah. know, he started doing ad-libs, mm -hmm. and that's part of his, his thing, you know. Mm -hmm. He became a singer yeah. by doing that. Yeah. And I said, well, how do you feel? Like, put that into, you know, so he started adding ad-libs, and now that's part of his whole thing, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, there's just something about it. If you, <laughs> not that you would, but if anyone were to listen back to, like, Billy's Whiplash Smile album. Like half that album is just grunts, you know, and noises and yelps and ooze. But it he, he gets so, these guys get so much mileage and effectiveness out of their little uh, affectations or whatever it is, these ad-libs that you mentioned in, in a different way to me. I, and Perry Farrell is similar. Anyway, I think it's a really special quality. Okay, anything memorable specifically about the making of Fire King? I love this song. 
or Sun King, you mean? Or I'm sorry, yes, Sun King. Well, I just like I like the whole feel of it, and I like the title and the lyric, mm-hmm. and it's just like, you know, to me, it's like it's got the melodic guitar in it, but it, it's it's kind of like it's the basis. It it kind of sums. It's a great album starter. It sums mm-hmm. up exactly how the album plays out, right? Yeah, it's got the, all the elements, right? Yeah, it's I got agree. the organ and everything, and mm-hmm. it kicks in. And right from the word go, you're going like, okay, this is mm-hmm. this is like great rock music. Absolutely. Nice big up front. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, that one's followed by Firewoman, which is, of course, the breakthrough. This one reaches number 10, I believe, on the singles chart. They had four charting singles on the mainstream rock chart, I should say. Um, And the thing about Firewoman, and this is another kind of cult hallmark, are these intros. Uh, She Sells Sanctuary, Wildflower, Love Removal Machine. These all have indelible intros that announce this is a cult song and you know it. You know what I mean? And, And Firewoman is the biggest of all. Yeah, I mean, there's a... Once again, you know, just reaching back to what, you know, basically what I liked and what they liked, you know. Sometimes Ian, you know, fought back about it, like not going backwards. But then, you know, like I said, the album ended up being the best combination of what they had done. I mean, to me, that if if I have a style, it's really just bringing the best out of the people that I work with. Mm-hmm. Helping them make the record they want to make, but by trying to focus on the things that are great and you know obviously the 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 intro is there on purpose because mm-hmm. that is one of their signatures so why wouldn't we do that yep. and then it's got the big melodic guitar riff right off the top mm-hmm. you know? and a huge one word uh, chorus huge, yeah and you know you see this this is the thing is it's like i mean people it was so big that how somebody could deliver one line like that, one word, mm-hmm. and a character can carry a chorus shows the the depth and and how great Ian is. Absolutely, you know? yeah. uh, People talk about that, mm-hmm. and of course, the other thing about it is the whole the whole coming out of the uh, the breakdown with Mickey's yes. style uh, oh, drum thing, which so is so good. 
Yeah, you know, and it was like, um, I remember Mickey, Mickey, I just said, okay, so we need just like this, you gotta just, just play like Keith Moon and do your vibe, and yes, we just did it one take, and we are just going like, we are going like, holy shit. <laughs> That's it. That is it, Keith Moon, you know? exactly, yes. Well, yeah. you know, it was a reference, I mean, it, yeah. it, you know, it's kind of, it's Keith Moon-ish, but it's yes. Mickey. Yes. You know, and... You know, he loved playing on the Cult album. I mean, he he really enjoyed it because, you know, as, as a producer, I, I, you know, I don't dictate how, you know, like I'll I'll say something and maybe there's feels I want to hear, but really I let drummers be drummers. And, mm -hmm. you know, he loved the fact that he could play like that, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And his groove is just out of control. It and, is. You know, Firewoman is a classic, you know, um, like in terms of rock song, it's got swing to it. Yeah. And you know, sometimes, sometimes rock music can be very rigid, mm -hmm. right? Whereas mm -hmm. Firewoman has swing. It's got hips. Yes. You know, it's, that's it. It's a great feel. It and is. that's that's Mickey, but it's also the band and how they played. Mickey yeah. made them better. You know, that's, that's having a, a great drummer like that, it freed them up to be very more to bring out the best of them. Right. You know? I um. You know, it's kind of a miracle on your part that you intuitively knew that because it's not, I mean, Brian Adams rocks, but not like the Colt and Holland Oates don't rock. So what reference point, is it just the faith of knowing what a great and nimble drummer Mickey is that he could tackle a band like the Colt? You saw well, that? Well, it was, it was more like, you know, it's like, I, I mean, drummers, we could talk forever about drummers. You have to start with a great rhythm section. And I knew that we just needed to have great feel. And I didn't want to have to, I didn't want to have to have a drummer that was, we were just trying to get great time. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you had to have somebody that could actually take the band to another level and not have to worry about whether it was in time more like at a feel. And all the records, like the Hall of Notes and stuff that he did, and with the Adams, with Adams, he he made Adams' songs sound better with his feel. Good point. I mean, really, that was more than the reference. And I got to know Mickey because, you know, they did a lot of recording at, at Little Mountain, so I mm -hmm. met Mickey. Mm -hmm. And I just heard that, that he could rock, because yeah. he rocks on the Adams album. So I knew he could do it. I just... I just went, I just know Mickey, it'll make it, it'll be great if we don't have to concentrate on just getting good, you know, in time drum tracks, we can get great performances. And that's what we did. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, you mentioning that, I hadn't thought of it before, but if you take a, a Brian song like Somebody and you listen to yeah. the drumming on Somebody, it's not that far removed, actually. I mean, I, I'm a, Reckless is one of my top favorite albums of all time. It's perfect. If you ask me, and, and it's so good. And you're right, the drumming is not that different. I see what you mean. Um, okay, uh, track three is American Horse. This is my second favorite uh, song on the album. Get up! 
this one goes back to uh, like we were talking about Ian's sort of fixation with Native American culture and mythology and stuff like that. Did he um, like does he wear you know? I always imagine him wearing like a choker with like a made out of like teeth with you know uh, native like feathers in it like a like an Indian would. Does he wear that stuff in real life? You know. Well, he's one of those. You know, the the thing is, is there's there's rock stars that kind of like wear normal clothes, and then when they, you know, when they do a show or whatever, they dress up. Mm-hmm. You know, Billy and Ian always live the, the look. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's the way they are. And Ian, you see, Ian had this huge, huge effect on my life and the way I saw things like. Oh. He, you know, what he set up when he sang, you know, he had the candles, he had, he had pictures, he had, you know, he kept all his notebooks, all his lyric books. He just kept all these logs and journals and, and diaries, like literally 20 or 30 of them lying around. So it, it wasn't so much that he wore it, but I mean, he lived it. He, mm-hmm. he looked like, he looked like a rock star, nonstop. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Like at, when he came to, you know, in the morning when you when you see him in the morning for breakfast, he looks like <laughs> an Asbury on stage, right? Like it's not. It doesn't. Yeah. He's always he's always on. Yeah, you know? I could and see I, that. And that it's almost the way they look. It it's not styled by anyone. Just a combination of what they think is great. And yeah. I always like the that about the Stones and great bands is that you know they didn't change into stage clothes. Well, some yeah. did, I guess, but they lived uh, lived what the way they they played, what they mm-hmm. looked like. Mm-hmm. That was a big part of it. I could see that. Like that. Yeah, I could you see that. You just wanted to, you just, you just wanted to hang with them, you know. Yeah. I mean, they brought their motor motorcycles up, right? Yes. Their, their Harleys up to Vancouver, so you know they were riding it around, and you know, and like Iggy's on the album, we went to see Iggy. Yeah. They rode their choppers and. You know, Iggy had to push Ian's chopper to get it started to go back to the hotel. <laughs> but, you know, so it's like, you know, and it's funny, my, my wife used to tell me that every band I work with, I'd become, look, I'd start looking like them, right? <laughs> so definitely, you know, they had an influence on on me in terms of the aesthetic and everything. Okay. You know, I started buying, you know what I mean? Yeah. You just yeah. look at them and they're they're just so, both of them are so, so freaking cool they are you can't help but yeah the same with tommy and nikki i stopped at buying testarosas with them and tattoos (laughs) but other than that it's the same thing so that's great yeah that's great all right yeah american horse has these huge slabs of guitar licks in there that i love i read another interview with billy and he mentioned that this one's one of his favorite songs as well um i just uh i love the way that this one rocks all the way around all right, track four is Edie, Chow Baby, and that's my favorite. This is.
This is probably my favorite Colt song overall. I do really like Love off of the Love album too. That That's another one up there. But my understanding, and again, going back to something I think I read with Billy, I believe you came to him and with almost like having a vision and said, Billy, what this song needs is eight cellists. Do you remember this? Well, what, what, what it was is that I thought, one, what we did is we recorded the orchestra, the eight cello players playing string parts, mm -hmm. which was what Bob Buckley, the arranger, came up with, okay? Mm -hmm. But I heard cellos, right? Mm -hmm. and so we, we actually recorded it live with the string players. We used two studios at Little Mountain. The band were in one studio and the strings were in other. And we actually recorded it live. Now, the thing was, is that I just wanted to capture a moment. Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to be overdubbed. Mm -hmm. So that's what we came up with. And it was really, you know, it's all around that 12 string and the, the, the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just did what, what it, you know. The thing is, is the answer to making records is always in within the song. And if you've got mm -hmm. the song, that's why pre-production is so important. It's basically everything makes sense when you when you start recording something. You know where the journey's going to go, and that one just cried out for it. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you a story about that that string arrangement. I was working with Richie and Little Stephen from the E Street Band. Right, drop by to see Richie. Right, mm -hmm. and we're sitting. And he was sitting beside me. And I was doing a vocal with Richie, and I was completely nervous. I mean, <laughs> he's sitting beside me. <laughs> and I was kind of shaken almost. It made yeah. me so nervous. And Richie went to the washroom, and Stephen, he, little Stephen says to me, he goes, by the way, he says, my favorite string arrangement on any song, period, is the cult song, Edie. And my jaw dropped to the floor. Really? When he listened to it, and he says it's one of his favorite ballads of yes! all time. Yes, yeah. And he says, he says, the string arrangement and the whole song is is one of his favorite ballads. He said, "You nailed it, Bob." And wow! Like, wow! I know. Wow! I mean, it's one thing if I feel that way, but little Stevie, that is amazing. Yes. Yeah. That is great. Yeah, so he and yeah, and he he just loves the song. Yeah. But he made note, and I told him that there are actually cellos playing string parts, which is Bob Buckley, the arranger. Which is brilliant, which is why there's so much ed and edge in the cellos. Mm -hmm. They're playing really high. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, did you have to talk the guys, Ian and Billy, into making us, and I should say Jamie Stewart too, I'm going to talk a little bit more about him here in a minute, but did you have to talk them into strings? Did they, or were, is that how they envisioned this song when they brought it to you originally? Well, I think, like I said, it, it kind of develops. I don't okay. think, you know, they didn't have a vision before saying, we're going to put strings on it. It's just like basically when you get into it, it's like, well, you know what? You know what I keep hearing? It just it just needs mm -hmm. this. Let's just do it. And they mm -hmm. were game. Yeah. Good. You know, like and but but it had a lot to do with the fact that, like, I knew Billy, but Ian started trusting me the more we did the record, mm -hmm. and so he ended up trying things that you know I said, well, let's try this. Mm -hmm. And so, but he was involved and he loved the strings because. They weren't sappy, right? They mm -hmm. weren't these beautiful strings. They're kind of edgy, like with the cellos. Mm -hmm. So to, you know, like I said, the, the, the arranger, Bob Buckley, he nailed it, right? He mm -hmm. captured the vibe. 
And what I love about the song is it's live. Really? The whole performance. I never would have guessed that. Never. That is incredible. Yeah. Incredible. So this was the third single, and it's incidentally, if anyone isn't sure, it's about Edie Sedgwick. What is it with people's fi fi fixation with Edie Sedgwick? I mean, she was gorgeous, but so many bands, Drama Rama, Edie Brickell, and the New Bohemians have songs about Edie Sedgwick. I wonder what do you know what his fixation with Edie was? Well, I I think it's the Warhol that whole time period. Yeah, the Velvet Underground and everything, you know. Yeah, Ian is a master of, of kind of culture and counterculture, mm. you know, and like I said, he's, you know, they're, he's almost like shaman-like in terms of his, like, culture. Mm -hmm. He's just like a, a culture sponge, mm. you know, and he's right on the money, which is why he's so freaking cool, right? Yeah. He's just like, and so he, he, he just, he dabbles, he's interested. Mm -hmm. You know, Ian Ian will never ever get old because he's <laughs> he's always interested. Mm -hmm. He's always wanting to learn and see and be better. Mm -hmm. I just love the guy. Yeah. But that's that that's where it came from. And then his girlfriend at the time kind of looked like her. Oh. Who's in who's in the video, right? Yeah. Oh, I didn't piece together that they were actually together. Okay. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, great song. It's a classic. It's my favorite. Okay, track five is Sweet Soul Sister. single you were talking earlier about that keyboard intro and it's so effective who played that a guy from vancouver that i is a very good friend who's great hammond player john webster mm. yeah he just he's been playing hammond all his life so he, he was perfect okay you know and, he you know and once again it just it, it gave gave the depth to the song yeah you know and another you know another dimension Mm -hmm. That's part of the album. Yeah, yeah. It sounds you. I'm see. I'm noticing a theme here in these songs and in your approach, which is you really try to get inside and think what the song needs or requires or could use. And these little touches, like Mickey's cymbal intro on Sun King or the keyboard intro on Sweet Soul Sister, that's that's what these songs are asking for. And you're listening and you hear that. And you heed the call. That's really that's why you are who you are, Bob Rock. <laughs> you know, that's uh, that's great. Um, well, it's it, 
My much like when I talk about Ian, I mean, basically, my whole life has has been about records and the yeah. sound of records and all the instruments. So, you know, it like I said, it's never preconceived. It always just like it, it's almost like you hear it because you've heard it before. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you go like, well, this needs this. Mm -hmm. You know, and and then you know we talk about a reference, and the organ couldn't be couldn't be the Doors. It had to be more like Deep Purple or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Good so, one. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, Jamie's bass sounds really effective on this song as well, and you know he's he's kind of that third member that we don't talk about as much, and he retired. My understanding, I believe, after the tour for this album, was he as integral was he making big decisions or was it very clearly a two-headed kind of operation here no jamie was part of it okay jamie was definitely part of it i mean like every band has you know those alpha males mm -hmm. but jamie was much like you know kirk with james and and lars right mm -hmm. they're integral in terms of the overall thing i mean to me Jamie was kind of missed, mm -hmm. I believe, in the end. I wish he would have stayed with the band. Yeah. You know, he added he added a great bridge between Ian and Billy. Yeah. And he, he's a great bass player, very tasteful, very strong, very easily. I mean, Mickey loved him, playing with him. Mm -hmm. It was just nice and solid. And, you know, he served the song. He played the right part. He did. So. He did. He's yeah. great on this whole album. Actually, Do you know why he left? Yeah. No, I don't know. I, mm. I, if that's personal stuff, but, okay. you know, okay. uh, I, could, I could never speak to that. But okay. you know, he was an integral part of the band, and, mm -hmm. and it's too bad he left. But actually, I actually have the bass, his bass. Oh, know? really? I I got it off Billy, so I've got the the bass that he played on all the records. No way. I use it all. I used it this morning, actually. Really? Recording a demo. Jamie Stewart's yeah. bass. Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah, this is a this is a great song too. And when um, you know Billy on the cover is so iconic, the cover photo for Sonic Temple, and he's there with his Gibson Les Paul. Is this is Billy a guy who needs multiple different guitars when he's recording this album, or is he really on just like one or two? I mean, he's got his sounds, his classic sounds, you know. Uh -huh. But you know, he's a Les Paul guy. Yeah. You know, because he's a fan like myself of, of Ronson, mm -hmm. and he loves that sound. That's his sound, and of course that that with the Gretsch, right? Oh, okay, those are his his mainstays guitars, and you know, like and the sound that he used with the Gretsch is the the jazz chorus, right? Mm -hmm. And the effects. Mm -hmm. So those are the two main sounds, okay. and of course we use the twelve string. The twelve string is basically a Gill twelve string that I bought after I did Slippery Run West. Mm. The, the guitar sound on Slippery, basically, you know, it's a Guild 12-string with this AMS chorus. Mm. So virtually that is, you know, the acoustic guitar and clean sounds that I've been using forever. You know, it's on the Black Album. Yeah. Right. So it, is it actually the same guitar that's being used on all three of these albums, or is it just the same version of that guitar? Well, Richie, I bought one exactly like Richie. Okay. And I okay. still have it, you know. Uh, yeah. His got stolen, but whatever. Mm, but, sure. you know, that model of, of, of a Guild 12 string, they're just beautiful, and they okay. have that sound, you know. Yeah. 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 
Okay. All right, track six, Soul Asylum. This is like the big epic center point in the album, seven and a half minutes. This is Billy's other favorite. Um, it harkens back to Led Zeppelin in a way. There's some cashmere, not cashmere-like groove to it. Was this song always meant to be kind of a longer, more epic jam? Is that how it was devised in the beginning? Or is that another, is this another situation where that's what the song was asking for? That That's, I mean, it was dictated by, you know, I think when you make records, bands just you know they have lots of references and lots of things that they love so you know it, it wasn't supposed to be a feel-good hit of the summer it was <laughs> supposed to be there's a definite mood to it right? right and there's a there's a vibe to it and that's part of who they are yeah. right they uh you go through all the the emotions and stuff and yeah okay so uh yeah like it's one of my favorite songs too yeah, uh, yeah, on the record, definitely. It wasn't like I say a conscious thing. It's just that that's part of what they brought, and you know, and so mm -hmm. you embrace that. Yeah, do you follow me? You, you don't yeah. try and change that. You you keep that because that's it's part of who they are. My understanding is that Billy was sort of in the driver's seat on this album, and that Ian sort of took the driver's seat on the next one. Ceremony was that. It's you've been sort of painting a picture here of equal partners, but I mean Billy gets to shine. They all do. They all get to shine. But this is, I mean, Billy and his guitar. He must be in heaven. You know, would, did you notice one's voice being louder or more in control than the other on this project? No, between the two of them, nobody's in control. Okay. I mean, like I said, really, in the history of bands. It's, it's the tug back and forth between strong personalities that that you know make bands great mm -hmm. you know it's hard for bands and it's hard to stay together and stuff like that mm -hmm. but their relationship 
you know, like I said, they're they're brothers and they love each other, but you know, they're they're tug of war that no nobody wins, let's put it yeah. that way. Mm. It just it's constantly flowing. You Got know, it. so nobody dominated whatever. It was always part of kind of a conversation, a musical conversation. Okay. Like I said, and Jamie when he was there too, he added to that and sometimes he helped mm-hmm. by settling them both down and finding you know, a great middle ground on a decision and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Okay. Do you follow me? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, yeah, I wouldn't say, but there's a lot of guitars because that's basically, you know, really the cult was a, a four-piece. The keyboards mm-hmm. were something extra. So mm-hmm. combining the, the rock element and the love element, there had to be multiple guitars. Yeah, definitely. And so Billy was in his moment. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's it. That's it. Okay. Track seven, New York City. This is the one that features Iggy. I read a little anecdote somewhere that um, I believe Ian, you were mentioning the the choppers earlier. I believe Ian went and picked up Iggy on his chopper and wrote and drove him to the studio to do this. And I'm just imagining, you know, Iggy on the back of Ian's chopper with his arms around his waist, hanging on as they drive to the to the studio to do this. Is that what happened? Yeah, Ian had this amazing red. San Francisco chopper, oh, and we went to we went to see Iggy, okay, mm-hmm. and we came back to the studio afterwards, and uh, you know it, he was just hanging. I don't know if he had his arms around Ian. I think more he was just like <laughs> sitting there against the uh, right, yeah, okay. the sissy bar, so to speak, uh-huh. at the back. Uh-huh. Uh, it was a sight to see. Iggy was cooler <laughs> than crap. Yeah. I mean. He signed one of my strats, and he thought it was really funny that his name was Iggy Pop and my name was Bob Ross. That's true. He thought that was funny. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, Iggy's one of my all-time favorites for sure. Yeah, um, it was great to meet the Egg. Yeah. yeah. What is? Uh, what did Ian have a really bad experience in New York City or what? Because you know he's there's lines in here about Hell's Kitchen being like the DMZ, and you know Lennon got fried. Pressure never stops. What what was the uh, what was the issue? Do you know? Well, they when they did the electric album, they were basically staying in New York. Ah, uh, that's you true. know, yeah, yeah. They did the, they did it at Electric Lady, so they were there for months. Got it. I mean, they left England to Americans. They didn't go to LA right away. They were in New York for a long time. Okay. So I think that's where that came from. You know, I can't. I, don't know for sure, but I would mm-hmm. say that probably had a huge influence. 
Yeah. And then they ended up being in L.A. when, you know, when I started to work them, work with them, they were already living there, right? Okay. okay. But I would say that's probably where it came from. You know, the, the lyrics are very metaphoric and image-related. Mm-hmm. That's like his notebook, that mm-hmm. song. Good point. I, you can just, if you saw his notebook, all his notebooks have drawings and pictures. and It's really, they, he should actually publish them all. Really? They're actually brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah, wow. he actually made me start doing it, right? He had a huge wow. influence on me. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that would be so interesting to see. Wow. It would be, yeah. Okay. Um, all right, track eight, Automatic Blues. This is the shortest song in the album. I bring this up and I get some heat for it sometimes. This is the song that I forget is on the album. That's a, and I've said this on you know I try to I insert that in most of these deep dives. We had Ron Nevison on here and I was I said something similar. But there's always a song on an album where you're like, which one is that again? Oh yeah yeah yeah, that's the one that goes blah 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 blah. That's kind of what this song is for me. Um, but I uh, I don't know. Do you have a story about the creation of of Automatic Blues? No, <laughs> you kind of stumped me. It's okay. that song that you just talked about. Yeah. You know, it's it, it, it's not filler. It was part of pre-production. Sure. We worked on it. We made the best of it, and it works on the album. Yeah, it works on the album, and uh, okay, yeah, okay. you know, but, but you know, I guess in any album, there's always stuff that just really resonates, mm-hmm. and things that are just good, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that one's good. Yeah, I like it a lot. It's just of all of them, it's the one that I forget is there. I guess I was going to yeah. read a um, a quote from the New York Times review of this album, and it says Sonic Temple is both the band's most conventional album and its most convincing. Using a few simple riffs and images, the Cult creates an entire environment, one more exciting and stimulating than our own. 
Bob Rock, the album's producer, washes blunt, powerful sound over the broadness of most of the band's strokes. Sonic Temple makes a virtue of its lack of subtlety. <laughs> Sometimes when I read reviews, I'm not exactly even sure what they're saying. And I have a couple more I'm going to sprinkle in here in a little bit. But one of the things that came up on a couple of these is like just the bigness of it. And that it's almost, in fact, I'll well, I'll save this because I'm going to read a Robert Christgau in, uh, quote here in a minute. I'll save it for another song. But anyway, yes, there's a big sound here. And uh, the New York Times seemed to get it. Do you remember this? Do you take anything, take any heat from what the New York Times say about Sonic Temple? Uh, no. Okay. Um, yeah, but I'm willing to listen. Okay. Go ahead, Jay. <laughs> well, no, that, that was the quote. I just wanted to read the quote there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So track nine is Soldier Blue. There's lines in here from Blade Runner, if I uh, read correctly. He, I couldn't quite tell if he was saying that the soldier blew, if he was empathizing with this soldier who's like, you know, forced to fight in a war he doesn't believe in and it's turning him into a machine or a monster, or that this guy is a monster and we should be scared of him. Do you know? I couldn't say, okay. but I would say. I would say knowing Ian, he, there's a part of it that, you know, he, he basically is a soldier. Ian yeah. is kind of a soldier. He mm -hmm. lives kind of like like that. I could see he, that. Uh, yeah. He yeah. does reenactments and everything, right? Does he really? He wears uniforms. Oh, yeah. And he, do, he wears uniforms and he's got a collection of all sorts of stuff. So. Wow. You know, that's part of it. That's part of his influence. It's like he... You know, he can dabble from something as beautiful as Buddhism and and spiritual things right up to soldiers, etc., and reenactments and stuff, okay. which makes him which makes him so interesting and yes. and this, this this amazing human being that he is. Yeah. yeah. Wow, I had no idea. Speaking of influences, I wanted to read a quick quote that I read from him. Uh, he says, we wanted to retain our core DNA as we went deeper into psych and hard rock influences. It was a complete immersion for me into art, film, music, poetry, and literature, weaving those influences into what was to become Sonic Temple. The band was becoming more popular. We were in uncharted, water, uncharted waters. Most of the bands we had come up with had split or fallen off. We were accelerating. There was no real time to breathe. We were forming new allegiances and breaking the glass ceiling 
of the indie outsider. And I think that's a very, everything you're talking about, what a sponge he is and how much he's drawing on culture and sounds and art to influence his muse and his mojo, that speaks to all of that right there for sure. And it talks about, it says what we've been talking about, them kind of going from this indie rock band into a full-fledged rock band that's selling, you know, million and a half copies of an album. Yeah. Well, you know, basically he described it perfectly. Yeah. Which, is, which doesn't surprise me. Yeah. But that's exactly what it was. And, you know, looking like I'm, you know, I read many, many books about rock and music and stuff. It's kind of my, it's my thing. I love it. Um, me too. You know, it's been my whole, whole life. And, and just really when you look at all the, the bands, they all come from influences like that, you know, mm-hmm. even the Stones with the blues and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what, you know, I think, I believe what the greatest thing about, about bands is they draw from their influences, but they never wear it too close on their sleeve. You know, yeah. like they don't wear it on their sleeve, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. In other words, I hear all those influences that he's talking about and that I reference, but it always just sounds like the cult because it's Billy's guitar mm-hmm. and it's Ian Asbury. Mm-hmm. And as long as those two guys are there, no offense to anybody else, but those two, they, there's a sound that they have that is unique. Mm-hmm. And you always know it's them, and that's, that's a great band. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it is. Um, speaking of books, what get, recommend one or two. What are some of your favorite rock-related books? Well, I can tell you right now, what, one of my favorite books is the, the XLM Main Street picture book by Dominic Carlay, which, which, oh, which is the whole XLM Main Street album. Uh-huh. It's a picture book, but it's got it's it talks about the whole thing. I go to that constantly, not just for you know, just in every way, just yeah. uh, that period of time, you know. And I just got the new uh, Jimmy Page anthology, which Ooh. you know describes all his all his guitars, all his equipment, all his clothes, every session, everything. Huh. Which is so those two things I read right now. I'm reading constantly. Yeah, but I pretty much buy everything. I really like Keith Richards' book. I, I really have not that. read that one yet. I keep I mean to, and I just haven't gotten around to it. Have you heard? Do you know Ted Templeman? Have you heard about? Do you know him at all? Of course, I know. Okay. I know about him. I've, I've never met the man, but I yeah. admire his work. Oh, okay, yeah, great producer. Um, an author named Greg Renoff, who wrote a really good book about Van, the early days of Van Halen, just published a book about Ted, and that's kind of the next one that I'm going to read. I love reading stories like that. So much good stuff. Okay, good. Well, we got some book book uh, recommendations from Bob Rock. Okay, this is, on the regular album, there's a bonus track that we'll get to in a second, but this is technically, I guess, kind of the last song, Wake Up Time for Freedom.
And uh, this is when I was going to read the Robert Criscow <laughs> review. I always insert his reviews in here. I probably sh should stop because I can never really... First of all, I rarely agree. And secondly, they're, he's so snarky. But this one says... Uh, first of all, he gives Sonic Temple a B-. minus. He says, Having risen from cultdom as a joke metal band, metal fans were too dumb to get... They transmute into a dumb metal band. Dumb was the easy part. Ha ha. I don't even know what that means. But uh, I don't listen to the cult Sonic Temple album and think that it's dumb. But maybe if I were, I don't know, if I was some music snob, maybe I would. Do you ever feel, I mean, do you ever feel marginalized? Like, you've worked on these classic albums, but they're, they're, they're associated with bands. I don't know, like... I don't know that the, the music intelligentsia is giving Slippery When Wet or Dr. Feelgood the accolades they deserve. Do you ever feel that or notice that? Well, I can tell you one thing. Um, a big part of my thing has always been is to ignore all the, all the noise there as much go. as possible. Yeah. Uh, because I've got to just null out the constant opinion thing mm -hmm. because I think it stifles you mm -hmm. I mean the criticisms everybody's got an opinion uh, but you can't I can't let it get to me mm -hmm. so um, I think probably the reason why I still make records is because I just don't listen to the noise mm -hmm. I listen to what I hear and how I feel mm -hmm. and as long as long as I'm going to keep making records as long as it still makes me feel like it does yeah. like Right when I'm when I work with Klaus this young band, I'm just as excited as when I worked on Sonic Temple with the Cold. Good. Good. You know, yeah. you know, it still makes me happy. You know, guitars and the right lyrics and all the things that I love about rock music and music in general. You know, yeah, I can't listen to how other people see it. Good. I mean, yeah. There you go. Good. I agree. And your success has proven that out. You know, um, there's a there's a moment in Wake Up Time for Freedom that I really love where there's this very beautiful, subtle guitar solo that Billy does. And then it kicks into this raunchy, greasy, heavy guitar solo right after it, you know, and it's this incredible dichotomy of everything that Billy is able to do. You know, going back to that 12 string at the beginning of Edie, there's an example of that. In Wake Up Time for Freedom, there's an example of this very beautiful, subtle solo, and then it goes into full Billy, you know? And you get to see the entire range of what Billy can do on a couple of songs, really. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. had a lot of fun. Good. And that's dynamics. That's, that's what I love about records. Yeah. Just a whole, pile of, a whole pile of guys in the studio having fun. Right. Creating. Good. It's the best. Um, okay, last track. It was a bonus track. It's called Medicine Train. It's on my CD, so I figured we'd complete it. I think it's on most of the CDs out there.
this uh, little bit of trivia, there's a line in this song that inspired the name of the album. It says, All Fired Up, a desolation angel shooting from the hip in the sonic temple. And there's a great, you were talking, when you were talking earlier about uh, Ian singing Boogie as an outlib, as an ad lib, and like, who else could get away with that? In here, there's an ad lib of Sweet Jesus. And I love it. Yep. Every time I hear it, I'm like, yes, that is Ian to the core. He can do that and make it sound great. Um, so go ahead. Did I cut you off? What were you going to say? No, no, no. I was just going to say it's, it's a perfect example of the coolness of Ian yes. Asbury. Not yeah. very many people can pull that off. Oh. Nobody, not many people would even try. True. But he pulls it off and makes it cool, right? <laughs> very true. Yeah, very true. At what point did uh, naming the album Sonic Temple come into play? I think that was uh, that was pretty. You know, he it was it was always there. Okay. I mean, in all in all his uh, notes and everything, it was always about Sonic Temple. Okay. Huh, That's part of his creative process. Creative process. Wow. Definitely. Okay. Um, now, I think when they went out on tour after this album came out, they were touring with Metallica and Matt Sorum took over on drums. Did you have anything to do with, like, I don't know if you knew them or introduced them. How did Matt become part of the band? Do you know? I don't know. It was, I didn't know. I was no part of it. Oh, okay. Know? I knew Matt Sorum because... I had heard him. I did an album. He played on Jeff Harris, oh. and he played drummer. And I went, "Who? Who's this drummer? It's Matt Swan." But mm. yeah, he's uh, yeah, he's a great drummer. And then he went to Guns N' Roses. Yep, yep, yeah, yep. But, All uh, right. On that set, the uh, the Cult. That's when I first saw Metallica. Oh, Live. really? I went to see. Yeah, that's when I kind of went. After seeing The Cold, I stayed and watched Metallica because I bought the Justice album. And the Justice album sounded so thin, etc. to me. Uh -huh. And I just didn't understand it. But then I saw Metallica and I went, okay, now I get it. Yeah. You know, because yeah. they were so big. Yeah. So that was, that, that was a great night. And that's where this, you know, you guys have been a partnership ever since, practically. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. Well, when you look back, what's your lingering memory? What's the first thing that pops into mind when you think about this album? Is it, uh, I, it could be anything. Was it the, uh, I don't know, like, did you get the takeout food you had during this time or the, I don't know, was it anything? The, the groupies that were hanging around, whatever it might be, what color, what, what reminds you of this album more than anything? Well, here's the thing. When I heard Fire woman on the radio I went this is pretty good <laughs> yeah it is <laughs> and and every time I hear it I went wow this is pretty good yeah it really sounds great and that's that's what gives me pleasure but every time I hear it I go back to the session and you know my love for Billy and Ian mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um, yeah okay when you and I meant that's to ask this earlier saying. When did you, was it clear all along that Firewoman was going to be the first single, the one right out of the gate? Um, I think when we finished the album, we knew. Okay. Yeah, that was the song. Okay. Yeah, it was pretty obvious. Okay. Yeah, it was pretty yeah. obvious. Yeah. Well, good. Well, um, thanks for talking with me, Bob. You're a legend. No and I, 
I am so grateful for the time every time I get it. You're the best. Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. All right, guys, there you go. Wasn't that great? The Cult Sonic Temple from the man himself, Bob Rock. It does not get much better than that. Thank you so much, Bob Rock, for talking with us. It means the world to us. And if you guys are not, if you don't own Sonic Temple, or you've never paid that much attention to the cult, go deep. They're great. They deserve it. Now, I still have, I think, two deep dives in the can right now. So, assuming Vienna and I's schedule allow it, the next two weeks will be made up of those, and I still have a ton more being scheduled. So, anyway... We're doing our best here to entertain you guys, contribute to the history books of rock and roll by hearing some of the greatest people who helped form it. That's what we're doing here. We hope you like it. Love you guys. We'll talk to you later.